Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. To say we had a long and turbulent summer in 2020 would be a gross understatement. Our television screens were full of images of protesters from across the political spectrum demonstrating for their particular cause. We also witnessed the law enforcement response to these disturbances. In a few cases, military forces were brought in to assist the police to disperse demonstrators and restore order. The most famous example of this came on June 1st, when National Guard troops and U.S. Park Police used tear gas to clear a path in Lafayette Park between the White House and St. John's Episcopal Church. President Trump and members of the administration wanted to visit the traditional Church of the Presidents after protesters attempted to set fire to the building the previous night. The sight of soldiers right in front of the White House forcefully driving off American citizens drew condemnation from many sectors, as did the presence of the military's top officer, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. We're now on the eve of what could be a contentious and disputed election and a turbulent transition. With the possibility of not knowing the winner after November 3rd, the chances of renewed violence and even greater domestic disturbances will increase dramatically. This is prompting many to openly discuss the military's role in such a scenario. The Military Times recently published an article titled How the President Could Invoke Martial Law, and several legal scholars have also weighed in on the issue in the past few months. One is Mark Nevitt, a professor of constitutional law, national security law, environmental law, and climate change law at Syracuse University. He also has a solid military background. He started his career as a naval aviator, flying the S-3 Viking. He flew over 1,000 hours and had approximately 300 carrier landings. But when the Navy retired the S-3s, it sent Mark to Georgetown Law. And he spent the rest of his career as a Navy Judge Advocate General before retiring to join academia. Professor Nevitt, thank you for taking time out of your undoubtedly busy schedule to speak today. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. And, uh, I will say of those carrier landings, the only ones that really counted were the ones that night. The, the, the daytime ones were a lot of fun, but 140 nighttime landings were the ones that really counted. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have to take your word on that. I never did any carrier landings in my, in my tank. Uh, but hey, I know you're on a tight schedule, so why don't we just jump right into this. Um, after reading all of your recent writings, I've learned a lot about the domestic use of the military. So if you could just please describe what authority does the president have to use military force within the United States? Sure. Happy to answer that. And I should also um, want to highlight um, the writings that you're mentioning are out this week via NYU's Just Security blog. So if your listeners, uh, maybe you can put that in your show notes, if your listeners want to look at that in in text form, uh, I walk through this as well. Um, But the most important one is for military use that the president as commander in chief has a legal authority is is the Insurrection Act, which has a basis in constitution, constitutional law, and it's been on the books in some format since since 1792. It was uh, relied upon actually when George Washington was president 
and he he took the field in the whiskey whiskey rebellion during his presidency. Actually, the last time a commander in chief actually uh, took the field. So for over two hundred years, Congress has essentially delegated broad authority to the president to deploy the military domestically, and it's somewhat of a complicated law. It's changed and transformed over time, but essentially authorizes the military, uh, rather the president, to deploy military forces, both standing federal forces, federal military forces, and potentially national guard for a wide variety of reasons in a wide variety of missions. And so there's a few, just three triggering, triggering authorities, Dan, that I'll sort of mention. Um, they're all placed in statute at 10 U.S. Code 251, 252, and 253. So uh, the first authority is at 251, and that's when the president invokes the Insurrection Act at the specific request of a legislature or a state governor, a state legislature or state governor, whenever uh, essentially that state needs help from uh, from the uh, federal government to quell uh, insurrection or quell uh, a disturbance. And we saw that used most recently in 1992. That was when the Los Angeles riots happened and the uh, governor of California, Governor Wilson, actually requested President Bush at the time to, to literally call in the Marines uh, and, and the Army, uh, the Marine Corps was, was nearby and, and calling the Army to help quell uh, the riots. It's important, I think, for your listeners to note that that was the last time the Insurrection Act was actually invoked, was using this 251 authority back in 1992. It has not been specifically invoked or, or, or used since that time period, despite having no shortage of disturbances in this country, uh, Katrina, Baltimore, Ferguson, the unrest from the last summer. Um, so it's it falls in sort of the big deal category, Dan, uh, when this is invoked. Uh, the other two issues uh, or authorities under the Insurrection Act are 252 and 253. And, and that's when the president may invoke the Insurrection Act without a specific state request. Um, 252 has some uh, legal provisions, but essentially when there is, it makes it impracticable for the United States to enforce the laws of the United States by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. So think of what the courthouses were closed, um, the, the normal flow of uh, the criminal justice system and the judicial system is a complete, completely broken down, then the president can use this 252 authority to, uh, to call on the Marines or the Army uh, to a specific situation. 253 is probably the broadest authority, um, which essentially the president can make a determination to use the Insurrection Act whenever he or she thinks that there is a uh, insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination, or conspiracy. That's just from the text of the statute. And there's a couple provisions where he, he or she believes the president that that supposes or obstructs the execution of the laws of the United States or impedes the course of justice under those laws. So, you know, I think your readers, some of them may be lawyers, some of them may, may not be lawyers, but that's fairly open-ended under 253 on when the president could, could use that. Um, and so those are the three sort of key provisions when the president can sort of, I'll just use a term calling the Marines, but it could be Army, Air Force, Navy, Title 10 Federal Military Forces the last one being sort of the broadest authority, 
prior to using this, there is a requirement under the statute that there's a proclamation to disperse, and that's made public to every everyone in the in the area uh, prior to the military actually coming in. Okay, interesting. Well, what are some of the provisions of the law that would limit the president's authority to call out the military? So in terms of limiting, your your listeners probably know this, um, but just to highlight this, federal Title X military forces, that is the bulk of um, the DOD uh, active duty military. And for the most part, you know, they are not doing law enforcement matters, right? They have law enforcement. There are certain people who are military police who provide law enforcement on installations. Um, Most of the law enforcement uh, in the military is done at the National Guard level. And National Guard uh, normally reports uh, to the state uh, state governor. The Insurrection Act is an example where the president could potentially federalize uh, a local or state National Guard um, so that National Guard no longer uh, reported to um, uh, the state governor now reports to the president uh, as commander in chief. So that's a long way to say it. in terms of limiting, um, there's, there's sort of built in institutional day to day limitations based upon who you are in the military. And then if you are to invoke the Insurrection Act, uh, you know, I think there's a couple uh, limitations. One is just the statute itself. Is this a bona fide insurrection under the plain reading of the law? The, the law itself is silent on judicial review, but there's that would be challenged, I think, in court. And I think the most important, um, frankly, constraint is not a legal constraint. It's more of a political constraint, which is because Insurrection Act is so uh, rarely used and uh, it gets so much attention, just the attention this summer about its potential of being used. Some people think that Insurrection Act was actually invoked. It wasn't. Um, that that is a constraining uh, norm. And so the example I like to use is Hurricane Katrina. There was discussion in Hurricane Katrina of President uh, George, uh, George W. Bush calling in and invoking the Insurrection Act, uh, but he wasn't going to do it unless Governor Blanco of Louisiana uh, requested it because of the political considerations associated with that. So, so the upshot is that General Honore, uh, the, the three-star Louisiana National Guard, um, did a pretty good job, an outstanding job, I think, in hindsight on, you know, restoring uh, order to the city, to the city. And that did not require uh, a, an insurrection act invocation. Okay. Well, I, I think most people are aware that in the States, the governors are the commander in chief of the National Guard, but DC is an exception. Can you explain the significance of that? So DC <laughs> truly is an exception, uh, Dan. Um, the president is actually the commander in chief of the District of Columbia um, National Guard. And that's just unique within military uh, setup. And so uh, the it, it's a bit complicated on, on how the law works, but essentially that both the, the Secretary of the Army and the head of the DC National Guard report to, um, the president under, uh, existing, existing law. And so, um, that's something I actually have argued that we should probably clarify, uh, in, 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 in statute because, um, the mayor of the district of Columbia, um, you know, normally has day-to-day authority over, um, 
just normal, uh, you know, National Guard matters. But the president has uh, is ultimately the commander in chief uh, of the D.C. National Guard. Okay, Uh, very good. So another law that is often mentioned in D.C. uh, quite regularly these days is posse comitatus. Could you please explain what posse comitatus is? And specifically, can you talk about what forces that law encompasses and what forces are not covered by the law? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, So I think for your listeners, you know, the Insurrection Act is, you know, the most powerful, think of it as a, as an authority that the president uh, could use to employ the military domestically in state and local areas. Um, Posse comitatus, think of that as a restrictive statute um, that restricts the president's use of the military for day-to-day law enforcement matters. And it's a very short statute, Dan, so I think I'll just read it out and then I'll talk you talk you through it a little bit. Sure. It, it's a it's a criminal law. Uh, it's at 18 U.S. Code 1385, which is unique in its own right. And the Posse Comitatus Act, unlike the Insurrection Act, was actually passed following the Civil War. It's got a rather fascinating beginning in that it was passed in 1878, coincided with the end of Reconstruction where federal military forces were used uh, to enforce civil rights laws in the South. Many, many of those federal military forces were former Union soldiers. Some of them were African-American and they were in the South. And you can imagine that was quite controversial having this authority. So the Posse Comitatus Act has a rather kind of ignoble um, history uh, beginning in 1878 in that once the Posse Comitatus Act was passed, uh, many of these federal troops uh, went went further north, and then really some some dark times for civil rights in, in the South. And that's kind of one of the twists. If I can just ex- share your with your readers briefly, is that um, use of fe- of federal military forces at, at times has actually upheld federal civil rights laws of of upheld and protected citizens when the state or locality is not doing that. And you saw that with Eisenhower and, and, and Kennedy, who would actually use the Insurrection Act um, to uphold civil rights laws in Alabama and Arkansas and parts of the Deep South during uh, the 50s and, and 60s. So we, we view, I think, the use of the military forces through a 2020 lens. But ultimately, you know, that those have the military has been sort of has stabilized and enforced and protected uh, minority rights. But back to the Posse Comitatus Act, I'm sorry for that, uh, that bit of a uh, tangent, but I think it's important to, to, to put that into context. So the upshot is, well, one, with this strange term Posse Comitatus, which we're stuck with from, I think, the 19th century when there was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, formal law enforcement, organized law enforcement, when the, actually the local sheriff would call upon all able-bodied men in Colorado or Montana, uh, and that could be uh, a military base that was operating in the, the far west to help, uh, you know, form a posse and enforce laws. So we're kind of stuck with this bizarre term, posse comitatus. But your, your point, Dan, is that it only applies as a statutory matter to the Army and the Air Force as a statutory matter. The Marine Corps is not in there, nor is the Navy, nor is the Coast Guard, nor is any discussion of the National Guard. 
So um, the posse comitatus only uh, applies to Army and Air Force, but by Department of Defense regulation, um, the, the military has effectively applied those restrictions on use of the Army and Air Force to the Marine Corps, uh, Navy, but not the Coast Guard. It's, it's sort of a separate uh, entity within uh, as an armed, armed forces branch. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the Posse Comitatus Act, and I'll answer any question you might have, is it, it says, you know, this is the blanket rule may not be used as a Posse Comitatus to enforce essentially domestic um, law enforcement, um, except authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress. So unless you can point to a specific act, and the most important act is the Insurrection Act, um, then that's the blanket rule. Um, you know, the con or, or a specific provision in the Constitution. So th that's sort of the Posse Comitata Act 101. It's got a really interesting history. Um, it's not exactly a, um, a proud history, frankly. And there's a difference between statutes and regulations and who it applies to. Right. And in the latest piece you published, you talk about how it might be time to update the Posse Comitatus Act to enshrine in law some of the regulations that have been put in place so that the act will apply to all military forces. Can you explain why that might be necessary? Sure. So, you know, so there's a difference between law and regulation. Um, you know, DOD, Department of Defense, you, you know, applies the Posse Comitatus Act. Um, to the Marine Corps and the Navy um, via regulation, but regulations can change fairly easily, right? Depending on who is Secretary of Defense and who has that authority to issue that, that particular regulation. The last time the Posse Comitatus Act was modified, if I remember this correctly, was 1947 with the creation of the Air Force. So we have a new space force. Um, I know it's a, you know, it's a subject of a Netflix special, and people are sort of chuckle when they hear space force. But you know, space force is, you know, born out of the Air Force, and, and so why not take a, a look at the statute and see what it applies to, what it what it does not apply to? Uh, theoretically, space force will have uh, some uh, capacity to be involved in law enforcement. Uh, missions. So, you know, I argue that, you know, we should just do some statutory cleanup on a couple levels. One is, you know, apply it to the Navy and the Marine Corps, apply it to the Army and Air Force as it normally is, and apply it to the Space Force. And then I want to specifically define what can't be done. It's not a very long statute. So I argue that we should have a provision that any member of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or Space Force uh, is prohibited from directly participating in a search, seizure, arrest, detention, or similar activity um, as a general matter. And I also think, frankly, uh, the Posse Comitatus Act should be uh, clarified on what it doesn't apply to. You kind of have to look through all the, it's, it gets complicated fairly quickly on, on what branch of the military service. And so explicitly not applying to the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is unique, and that's the maritime law enforcement uh, entity. They have unique authorities. Uh, and state national guard, right? So state national guard should should not be expressly part of Posse Comitatus Act uh, prohibitions. So that's what I th I think that it's time with the space force um, and it's for some statutory cleanup. Well, that makes sense. Um, so what what are some of the circumstances that you think would justify the invocation of the Insurrection Act and deploying the military in a domestic capacity? 
Sure. So I think that, you know, you have to go to the statute itself and you have to have some sort of massive breakdown in, in civil order uh, where the uh, local police force and local authorities have completely um, lost the capacity to uh, safeguard the citizens, um, provide, uh, you know, some sort of elements of, uh, of safety to, uh, the people, uh, and, and Los Angeles riots, I think is a, is a good example of that, where there was, uh, widespread, uh, um, tragic homicides or tragic deaths in, in the Los Angeles riots. Um, I think ideally that the local governor or legislature is requesting this authority. Uh, I think that makes it seem less heavy handed with the local authority is saying we need help from the outside federal government to uh, control this insurrection. I think, I think that provides a certain um, veil of legitimacy that is there. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can imagine if the Los Angeles riots happened and they continued and the governor just would not, you know, would not, uh, you know, take steps to request uh, outside military troops, then you, you can imagine a, a scenario where the president would, would come in and, and, and make that determination under either 10 USC 252 or 253 without a specific request. Right. Okay. Well, with election night right around the corner, and of course, no reasonable person wants to see this, but what sort of a role do you think the military could play in case of domestic disturbance around that important night? So I think that there's been some discussion about election fraud and legitimacy uh, and other um, other just concerns about the election, which is, gosh, less than two weeks away. I ultimately don't see a uh, a very strong role at this time for the military, particularly the Title Ten Federal Military Forces, for a couple of reasons. Um, I think that the state National Guards um, operating under state active duty status they're already being activated now to provide some level of uh, you know election security and. Uh, some preparing for uh, potential um, unrest. Um, but you would have to have sort of a pretty uh, dark, stark, massive unrest for I think the federal military forces to, to be involved. I think that right now, much of what the federal military forces is doing is, is sort of under the radar in the sense of they're providing what they normally do, protecting the homeland, providing uh, defending the homeland, providing self-defense, doing uh, cyber um, security for for the election. I think that the cyber command did quite a good job, by all accounts, in, in 2018. So, the there was one authority that we haven't talked about, uh, Dan, which is which was used this summer, which is a 502F, 532-502F authority, um, which that was used in sort of an innovative manner by the attorney general and the president um, to, to bring in uh, state, state national guards. Um, but, you know, the upshot is 
you know, I don't see a, a at this time, a, a military role. I think politically it'd be very, very um, difficult. Uh, and particularly if it was done uh, without the requests of a state governor or a legislature. All right. And I'll just one one thing I'll add to, add to that is, is that institutionally the military is is quite nonpartisan, apolitical. So there are you know a, you know historical norms associated with this. Um, and and I, I know civilian control of the military is you know I think means a few things. One is certainly that the 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 federal military uh, forces, Title Ten forces, report to the commander in chief as um, as the, under the chain of command. But they're also civilian control of the military vis-a-vis Congress, and just the oath that's taken is it's in the Constitution, which lays out uh, when you know how elections are done and when the president, um, you know, will stay in office or would would potentially leave office. So um, I think that those those norms are 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 um, can't be dismissed outside the legal requirements. Right, uh, and I agree, and I think that's a a point that can't be made often enough about the nonpartisan nature of the military. You and I were both military officers, and I know that I was certainly reminded of that quite often in the course of my military education. So that is a key point for all Americans to really understand. But with that in mind, and God forbid there is a scenario where the military is called out over the next couple of weeks, but how, how would you explain to the public to think about how military forces are used? Uh, like, how would citizens be able to tell if the use of force is legitimate or if it is an abuse of power? Sure. And I can talk about sort of standing... Uh, rules of engagement versus rules use of force. Now I can I can wait for that. Um, whatever you would like to do, Dan. Sure. Yeah. Please. Th- that is another great point. You you wrote about that in your latest piece about the standard rules of engagement and the standard use of force. So please, if you can explain what those two concepts are, uh, how they differ, and how they apply in this context. Right. So this is this sort of became in the news a little bit over the of <laughs> the summer. I'm laughing kind of in um, a little bit in horror actually when the president tweeted out that you know looting um, if you loot you shoot or loot if, looting justifies shooting, which is just not what the standing rules for the use of force stay say. Um, and so most military forces, Dan, when you were a marine and every marine is a rifleman, um, they are drilled home via training, what's called standing rules of engagement, ROE. Um, That is more designed for an operational environment overseas and more sort of bread and butter traditional uh, military missions. Um, The standing rules for for use of force are are different. And that is what would be used in a domestic civil unrest situation by police officers, by National Guard, by federal military forces that were uh, being being used for a law enforcement capacity. Um, those, those rules are generally less uh, permissive uh, than standing rules of engagement. And there's a sort of a, a mindset shift that has to take place, which is can be very, very um, delicate. Uh, there, were, there were cases in the Los Angeles riots where the Marine Corps was working with uh, National Guard members or LAPD and when you say cover me in a SRO context, 
um, you know, that means maybe potentially open fire on someone and cover me in a, in a S rough uh, contacts means something quite differently, which is essentially, um, you know, don't take action, but, you know, keep on the, keep on the lookout. So I think there's a important shift that has to take place when that occurs, which I think just adds a bit of risk <laughs> to this because you have to go from more of an ROE mindset to a more constrained self-defense oriented rough mindset. And I, I think, Danny, you can tell me if I'm if I'm not correct here, but you know, the the military gets much more ROE trained and they do rough trained. Of course, would would get rough training before they were in a domestic situation. Um, but that would be um, you know, quite a shift from more of an ROE uh, mindset. Um, and, and just on the election itself, just getting back to important just political norms and i've been talking about the law a lot today too but i think that you can't divorce the law and the oath that the military members take to the constitution which is the highest law of the land to just this rich tradition that we've had in this country since uh 1800 which is you know scholars have reported that to be or called that the revolution of 1800 when you had a peaceful transfer of power between two different parties and so um, the Constitution is pretty explicit on on what happens and what the process is for an election, and it also states that on noon on the twentieth day of January, uh, the existing president uh, stays on if if he uh, has the votes in the electoral college, or on noon he he leaves or she leaves um, if he he or she doesn't have those votes. So, um, you know, I think military members maybe um maybe put too many too much faith here, but you know, they, they certainly have an oath to the constitution that is done on commissioning upon enlistment and, and every promotion thereafter. And, and that's the highest law of the land. And it's pretty explicit about what happens and what doesn't happen in an election. Uh, you are certainly correct about the kind of training my Marines and I received both before and during my overseas deployments. I received many briefings about the rules of engagement, uh, but there was always a, a heavy emphasis in every one of those briefings about the need to protect civilians in everything that we did. That's just part of the tradition and really the institutional culture of the military. Now, obviously, there have been some really horrible exceptions when individuals did not uphold that tradition, but they are the exception. Uh, I mean, hopefully that helps quell some concerns that, that may be out there. But uh, Professor Nevitt, you know, that, that's about all the questions I have for you. Uh, if you have any parting thoughts uh, that you want to add, the floor is yours. No, thank you, Dan, for having me. And I would just offer that the the, the laws are there. Uh, I think there is a longstanding respect for law, respect for the rule of law within uh, the military. Um, certainly, we, we live in very partisan times, uh, but we've always <laughs> it's always been sort of very partisan uh, times in, in this in this country. Um, so. Uh, I have faith that this will be a peaceful election. I, I think that the Constitution and the laws uh, prescribe procedures that be, that will be used. Um, and when you layer that on top of just longstanding historical norms that we can we can we can turn to, um, I, I'm fairly optimistic that uh, th despite some concerns. Uh, from from bona fide concerns potentially about this is we're in a coronavirus this pandemic, but I, I I'm fairly um, optimistic 
that we'll have a safe, peaceful election uh, that will include President Trump being the current the follow-on uh, commander in chief, or we'll have a peaceful transfer of power, which we've we've had since 1800. And yeah, that, that, that's well said. That's well said. Well, thank you very much, Professor Nevitt. And for, for all of you out there, that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, uh, find links to what we've discussed here today, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org slash Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.